It's so good to be with you guys. My name is Ben Kearns, and I'm the, the pastor of children and students here at Marin Covenant Church, and uh, it is just an honor to be together. I love our church, and I love Sundays and school starting, and uh, I was actually going to wrap this thing up. I got a kid who's at a soccer um, thing, parade, big soccer parade happening right now, and uh, I'm not there feeling like a bad dad, so I'm just putting that trip on you, and you're good parents because you're here. So... Um, Summer is over. Um, I don't know about you, but for my demographic, I have kids, and they're in school, and it's praise God. Um, So happy for that. I love this kind of new rhythm, but here's this awful thing. I put almost 5,000 miles on my truck this summer um, due to personal vacations, uh, youth group trips, and those kinds of things. And uh, what's interesting, um, my truck is awesome. It has this killer sound system that I inherited and Bluetooth audio that's connected to my Spotify. I have it dialed in. It's every high schooler's dream car. And so whenever we go on a trip, especially a senior road trip or we go to the bonfire, everyone kind of lobbies to sit in my car and I feel honored because no one ever wanted to be in my car before. But now they, like, they want to be in my car. And, uh, and so I never really thought about it until I was preparing this message because I'm the driver, I'm old, and my only thought is who's going to sit next to me, which means what kind of music are we going to listen to, right? So if it's no Ramsey and his crew, it's knife party and like centipede and some dubstep and we all like get, get our, uh, our dubstep on. And if it's uh, Tristan, we're all going to take naps and listen to like Noah and the Ark or who's the guy? What? Noah and the Whale, that's right, some, some indie hipster music. Um, you know, if it's, if it's Ethan, then it's like some like African techno music that no one's ever heard of. And, uh, and then if it's me all by myself, it's like news talk. So that's like my rhythm. But I never thought like, they're just kids. I'm like, they love me and they want to be near me, but they don't. They want access, right? And whoever sits in the front right seat has access, right? What's that seat called? Do you guys know? Shotgun, right? So that's the, front, that's the most prized possession. That's the most prized seat. And as an adult, especially as an adult man who drives, I don't even think about shotgun anymore. But there was a season in my life when I totally cared, especially in college. Because um, in college, right, you, uh, there's the, you had that one friend, and in my context, he had the 81 Honda Civic hatchback. And um, we're going to go to, I don't know, who cares, Vegas, Mexico, Portland. It didn't matter as long as we weren't at school. We were getting in the car, and we were going somewhere. And... Uh, and but in an 81 Honda Civic hatchback, shotgun is the most important call you can make. Because if you don't get shotgun, it's not you don't get to choose what radio you're listening to. You are like crammed in the back with three other dudes. And, you know, it is the worst experience of all time. And, uh, and what I think is interesting about shotgun is it, is it lays out. Because the truth is all of us long to know where we stand. We all want to know where do we fit in our like social hierarchy. And shotgun levels the playing field. Your driver, you're A. You're the number one. Great. You're not the driver. Who's going to be the number two spot? And, and so how do you determine who that spot is? Does anyone know? You call it. You call shotgun, which you would think is really simple, calling shotgun. But if you're not familiar with what shotgun is, this is I wasted several hours on this. You go to Google to find out all your pro- problems, and you say, how do you find out who's shotgun? And there are pages in pages of rules with amendums and addendums, and there's apps, and there's all this stuff to figure out how in the world do you figure out who gets shotgun. So I came up, I found the abbreviated rules, but it's really simple. It's, it's a legal document. These are the basic rules of shotgun. In order to call shotgun, the caller must pronounce the word shotgun in a clear voice, and this, must, this call must be heard and acknowledged by the driver. The other occupants of the vehicle need not hear the call as long as the driver verifies the call check. You know, and a lot of these are intuitive. If you grew up in college and you had to go in the 81 Civic hatchback, these were ingrained. You knew the calls of shotgun. You only have to get the hump seat once to realize I'm never making that mistake again. <laughs> and, um, and so they, they go through it. So I, I didn't print a lot. It's kind of boring, but it's interesting. There, did you know that there are special cases 
Like there's special cases, like there's, I'm not going to read them all because they're boring, but it's like if you're dating the driver, you know, that, that kind of like moves you up the, if you have like a physical uh, issue that you can't do it, if you're too tall, like there's certain things, uh, but then the best part is the very, at the very end, there's a section three, it's called survival of the fittest. And I like this rule. This is the rule I want to reinstate into our youth group, which basically just says there's no calling shotgun. It is straight up blood sport to whoever figures out how to get there. And um, I'm pretty sure the car gets wrecked more than the kid in that. But, but I like this. Uh, for me, I always feel settled when I know where I, where I stand. If I'm the alpha, if I'm the driver, oh, I love that. I, at least I know. If I'm riding shotgun, I'm riding shotgun. If I look around, I'm like, oh, I'm in the hump seat in the back. Okay. But at least I know, right? There's this, there's this settling if you know where you stand. But if you don't know where you stand, then there's all this anxiety, all this insecurity, right? If you think I deserve shotgun and you end up in the hump seat, you are ticked. You know, if you think you deserve the hump seat and you get shotgun, oh, you're like, this is awesome. And it's funny because it's all perspective. It's all this weird internal world that we wrestle with. And the truth is, it's because from the very moment of creation, us humans did not, were not pleased with our status. We're not pleased with who we were in the order of things, which was God, almighty creator of all things, and us naked people running around the Garden of Eden. We didn't like that. We were like, no, I want to be more than I really am. And, uh, and the passage that we're going to look at scripture this morning uh, is a beautiful passage of scripture, and uh, there's pictures about it and stuff. But if you think about it, I think it is one of the most challenging, at least personally convicting passages of scripture. So you're gonna have to bear with me as we as we gut this out. But we're gonna take a look at Matthew chapter 18, uh, and this is a passage of scripture where uh, Jesus and his disciples are hanging out like normal, and they uh, they pose this question: Who rides shotgun? Because in this journey to God knows where, as we're going somewhere, we all want to know where we fit. Who are our people? Where do I stack up? And the disciples are no different. And the way Jesus rocks our world is going to be familiar to many of you, um, but is a, a good word for all of us this morning. So if you'd pray for us, pray for me, and I'll pray for us. We'll hop into this. Heavenly Father and our gracious God, I just pray this morning as we, as we spend some time in your word, God, that you would give us fresh eyes to see and fresh ears to hear so hard to come to a passage that's familiar, that sounds familiar, um, and even on an issue that we all know we wrestle with, God. But God, I just pray that you would give us a soft heart, give us new eyes to see that you are the almighty God of the universe. Jesus is your one and only begotten Son, heir of all things. And we're humans, and we're valuable, and, we're, and we have a place in that, God. But I pray that you would help us get a better sense of who we are so that we can be your people and do the work of the expanding of the kingdom for your glory. Amen and amen. So if you have a Bible, why don't you turn to Matthew chapter 18. All right. So Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 5 says this, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So Jesus, he called a little child to him, and he placed his child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, Unless you change and become like, this, like these little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And what's so funny is I, I love reading scripture in a patronizing manner. I don't know if you do this, but I, look at, I read scripture and I go, those dumb disciples, right? Or I read through the Old Testament and go, those silly Israelites. I would never do those things. But I think if we take one step back, this is my number one question all the time that almost informs everything I do, which is simply, who 
is the greatest, right? There's this room full of people. Who's the top? How do you get to the top? And uh, in some sense, I, I, the military is awesome this way. There's rank, right? And, and, and there's not just like the, the top guy and everyone else. Like there's all these gazillion little steps. I'm not going to embarrass myself with how much I don't know about that, but I do know there's all these little steps and you know exactly where you are. You know the exact rubric to move up and to move down and there's this settling and everyone obeys it and, you're, and you are it. And I think, oh, wouldn't that be nice in some sense if the world was that way? But the world is not that way at all. At best, if you work at a company, you have at least an org chart, right? And it kind of says, like in the church, there's P1, P2, D3. And there's all these like, different things. You think, where am I on that org chart? And you kind of have this sense of where it all fits. Um, for other companies, there's no org chart. And everyone's just like, it's just, well, I don't even know if that's true. So I'm going to take that back. Okay. Um, another way you might, might figure this out is, is who is the best? Who is the most proficiency at something? And, um, and so you look around and you think, oh, that person's better at this and better than this. And so they kind of get this natural esteem. And these more intuitive ways, whether it's proficiency, whether it's relationship, whether it's popularity, whether it's number of likes on something, right? The more intuitive and subjective it gets, I think the more anxiety that it, that it stirs up in front of us. In all of us, I mean, I've talked with from junior hires to old men, all of us wrestle with where in the world do we fit? Who is the greatest and where do I stand in this? And I love these disciples because they just come right out. They tell Jesus, Jesus, what is up? Who is the greatest? And the reason they do this is because there's 12 of them, and actually there's 72 of them, and actually, you know, there's even more than that. And there's like this giant pyramid scheme. And if you're part of this pyramid scheme of Jesus, you look around and you're going, I'm part of the 72. How do I get to be a 12? If you're part of the 12, you're like, I'm part of the 12. How do I get to be part of the three? You're part of the three, you're like, why can't I be Peter? And Peter's like, why me? Right? It's kind of like how it all works out. But that's what happened. Peter and James and John kind of emerge as like Jesus's main guys. So you have all these people, and then they become the main guys. And in fact, the chapter 4 and chapter 17, they go up to this mountain, and Jesus reveals his glory, right? It's the, the transfiguration. It's where God shows up. Jesus becomes beaming white, and he shows up with Moses and Elijah, and God shows up and says, this is my son, and you listen to him. And Peter and James and John got that experience. Could you imagine having that experience? I don't know about you as a parent. Uh, if you've experienced this, your kid comes home from camp and they come back and they judge you and you're like, man, you don't love Jesus like I do at camp. Um, I did that to my parents every summer at camp. You go to the same thing for students, right? You have these different experiences and you think, now I know Jesus. And you kind of look down your nose at people. And I would just think Peter, James, and John, they're human. How could you not experience God in the flesh, in all of his glory, and then come back and not somehow rub that into the other disciples, right? And, uh, and these other disciples are like, well, where's our place? And then right before this passage of Scripture, they, um, they're talking about the temple tax. And Peter kind of steps up as the spokesman for these people. And Jesus didn't like, say, this is the ranking of all the disciples. It was like this intuitive thing. And Jesus kind of you know, massaged it. And it, it was this. But if you're one of the other 12, this is a great question. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It looks like Peter then maybe James and John. And truthfully, I wonder if they were fine with it being Peter. There's plenty of people, including myself, I don't mind not being the leader. I just want to know where I live. Where is my rank? And so I don't even think they all wanted to necessarily be Peter. They just wanted to understand how it worked and where their place was. And, um, and so they come to Jesus and they say, what then, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus, instead of laying out his org chart, just jacks him in the worst way. And that's what we're going to take a look at. So here's the question. How do you determine who is the greatest? 
It's a question I have. You may not have it. You can just humor me the rest of the morning. But I think it's important to figure out who is the greatest. I think this works in the kingdom of God. It works in your family system. It works at your place of business. It works at your school. It works with your friends. So this is a great thing for all of us, no matter where you find yourself this morning. All right. How do you determine who is the greatest? Here we go. Matthew chapter 18, verse 2. Jesus jumps into it. He says, He called a little child among them. He placed a child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And I love this idea. Um, oh, oh, no. Hold on. Okay, we're good. All right. So I love this passage of Scripture because Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, doesn't lay out this huge lecture. He just simply grabs the child, brings him up to him, and says, See this? This is what it's like. And for us, especially as Marin County suburban people, we love children. Children are like almost our idol. They're amazing. They're beautiful. They're so inquisitive. They're so full of life. They're faithful. They're trusting. They ask hard questions. We should all be like children. That is not what's going on in this passage of Scripture. The question, the question on the table is, who is the greatest? Jesus says, you want to know who the greatest is? Take a look um, at this child. I'm missing a point somewhere. Do we have him up there? Okay, there it is. Great. So we find out, we want to find out who the big fish is. That's what we just talked about. So the second is, we need to take a step back and expand the size of our pond. And what that simply means is, in me and my world, if it's just me and John Ibsen, I'm the greatest. <laughs> Until it gets to looks, clothing, surfing, and general charisma. But in general, I'm at least taller and older, right? I make more money. Okay, so if I compare to John Ibsen, that works out pretty good. If I take a step back, you know, if I include a couple more people, it gets less, it gets less and less and less. And, uh, and the deal is, Jesus says, we want to take a bigger view and understand the pond that we live in. The pond that we live in, in this pond, it's not just you and this one other person. It's not just you and this little system. This pond is huge. And in fact, to, to mess with your perspective, this child who is the lowest person, when you think of who has power and authority and influence, in our world, a child actually has a lot of that. But in their world, a child had none of that. And they said, you want to know who's great? This child who has zero power, zero influence, and zero authority, they're the great people. If you think about that, that's awful. There's got to be loopholes somewhere because that just makes no sense. How do you lead? How can an organization function? How does a family system function without a leader, without someone calling the shots? If everyone's serving, that's not going to work. We have to find a loophole, and we've done a great job. Maybe not you, but for me, I found plenty of loopholes to make sure I want to be the servant, but here's the place I need to step in. And Jesus, unfortunately, he gives us no loopholes. He gives us no loopholes at all. Instead, he takes this little child and says, if you want to be great, expand your kingdom, expand your understanding, and realize that you actually have no power, you have no authority, you have no influence. And then here's the worst part. He doesn't even just say, check out this child. He says, unless you change and become like this child. And if you look, I, I read like 25 different uh, versions of, of, of Scripture on this one passage. And it's, if you change, if you repent, if you turn from your sins, if you be converted... It wasn't just, hey, be like this kid. The assumption is, you think you're great. I know I'm great. That's my assumption. I am great. But if I'm going to be like a kid, I don't just model kiddom. I actually have to be converted. 
I have to change. Something fundamentally in me has to change. And what's interesting, I love this idea of repenting. It got kind of a bad rap in the last generation or so, but we bring it back. And repenting is just simply, I used to think this, and now I think this. And we realize who, um, we want to find who the big fish is. We would take a step back to expand the size of our pond. We realize, oh, I'm pretty small. I mean, I, I cannot tell you how awful of a journey it is to have to understand this. There was this brief moment in time where I thought I was really awesome. And, uh, you know, I, I was this youth pastor at this church in Napa, and I had like 12 kids, and they thought I was great, and their parents thought I was great. I was legit. And then on the, so the, the church says, hey, you should go down to youth specialties because there's this gathering of youth workers. I'm like, that's awesome. So I go down to this gathering of youth workers, and all of a sudden, there's 5,000, like, kind of slightly overweight guys with a cargo pants and a polo shirt and goatees. I'm like, oh my gosh, we're everywhere. Like, <laughs> like my little pond, I had a place in my pond, but if I take a step back, there's me everywhere, right? And it works for everything, no matter what kind of house you have, what kind of car you have, what kind of it, money you have, where you stack up, um, wherever you are, if you step back far enough, you are just this average peon. You are a child. A friend of mine uh, worked with Campus Crusade for Christ, I guess they're called Crew Now, um, at Stanford. And, uh, and what's wild is Stanford, you only get to Stanford if you're the best, right? If you are the tippity top of your world, you get to go to Stanford. And all of a sudden, you show up at Stanford, you are valedictorian, you're the smartest kid in your class. Everyone from the time you were born was like, you're the most important special kid ever. And they're like, yes, I am. And then they go to Stanford, and everyone's like them. And it is devastating. And it crushes our, it cru- and no joke, they wrestle with depression uh, more than almost any other campus because they don't know where they stand. The deal is when we step back, we realize we are just this tiny little person in this, excuse me, in this huge pond. And I think in Marin, we, we have it bad. We have like, we have this case on steroids. I cannot tell you, I mean, because here's the deal. I mean, I live in Novato. It's like the redheaded stepchild of Marin, and I have it bad. So I can't even imagine my poor friends who live in Larkspur or whatever. But it is like, it is in us, this entitlement. Even like our churches, our, like we go to little pastor's conferences, and like, oh, that poor guy only has a thousand people in our, his church. We're like, we have 300 adults or whatever, right? Because, but we go, oh, it's cool. It's Marin. You don't know how hard it is to do church in Marin, right? We love that. We're so entitled. Even how, even being a small church, we love we're a small church because it's Marin. We, it's in us, right? Um, I can't tell you how many times I've heard, you know, like, well, my family, we need to do this. Like, that's good for all of you, but in my family, we, we do this because we're entitled. We have the resources, the relationship, or the, and the worldview that everything revolves around us. And Jesus says, you think you're great, you think you're entitled, you think you're awesome. Well, if you step back, the truth is you're only this little child. Because the deal is, for as entitled as you think you are, as important as your family is, and important as your system is, there's billions of you, of us, everywhere. We are just this insignificant little thing, right? And we need to get our head around that we are simply a child. And the bummer is, the only way we enter in the kingdom of God is by understanding our true place. And we understand our true place by repenting, by converting, by humbling ourselves and going, oh my gosh, why was I lobbying to be great? Because Jesus is great. I'm not great. Jesus is great. And this is my place. So we need to take a step back and expand the size of our pond. Because when we do, we realize that in the ocean, Jesus is the greatest. If we're at Stafford Lake, it's not hard to be a big fish there. If there are even fish there, I don't even know. But I do know you can, in our little pond, in your little school, in your little PTA, in your little work group, and whatever, 
There's all this jockeying all the time. But in the larger world, in the ocean, even whales are insignificant in the ocean. It is so huge. And in our ocean, we need to get our head around that Jesus is the biggest fish. We're always lobbying for the big fish. We're even lobbying to be number two. And Jesus is like, I am so big. I am such the big fish that in comparison, you are this tiny little child. So he goes on to say in verse four, so therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And uh, in my passage, it's nice, it says lowly position. I like that. Many passages of scripture says, for those, you have to humble yourself. And I hate that word humble. It's the worst world word because in our context and truthfully in our very core of our being, we hate humility. And what's awful is in our context, we have this way of doing fake humility, right? We all think we're great in the way we talk about each other. Golfers are the worst at this, right? No, no, I'm not that good. And, um, and then they, they smoke you. And I tried to like hang out with a golfer once and they's I really am not good. And now I see like what really good is, right? We all kind of hedge and fake. We kind of have this false version of humility. But we don't really like humility because we think humility means I'm awful. I suck. There's no place for me. I'm going to always sit in the hump seat all day because that's what God has for me. So we hate humility. But we have to understand humility is an awesome, awesome value. It is an awesome understanding because the deal was it's not about position. It is not about position. That's what humility is. Humility is helping us understand that we are valuable people. We are made in the image of God. Every single human is this valuable people. We who have been adopted into God's family, we have value. There's tons of intrinsic value in us. But status is what needs to die. Jesus hates people vying for status because he deserves all the status. And so humility is really is not saying, I have no value. It's just dying to your position and living most fully into your, into your, um, into your value. Um, imagine this. I mean, and maybe some of you, 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 this is how you were. If you had siblings and you knew your parents, if they had a favorite son or daughter, and uh, we always think it's the other person. It's always somebody else, and except for the most dysfunctional families. They're like, yes, it was me, actually. Um, but I would be totally devastated if my kids really knew who the favorite was. And it changes depending on their attitude, right? But I mean, if, if, if in my kid, if, if, if they settled in and, and Mackenzie got, well, I'm the youngest, I'm the girl, I don't have two front teeth, I'm always going to be second. And I mean, imagine what would happen in their worldview and in my relationship with them is if Noah fully got, he was my favorite and Mackenzie was not at all, what their relationship would be like, what my relationship with each of them would be like. And the deal is we have been adopted into God's family, we're his kids, and like, it's a bumper sticker, so it's, safe, it's lame saying it, but there are no favorites. And so we need to realize that it's not about position, not firstborn, last son, but it's about our value. And so the deal is we have to understand what humility is. And I found this definition, which I think is incredibly helpful. It says, well, not helpful, because if you're a student, you should never use the word you're defining in the definition, but Google said it, so I'm going to go with it. Humility, here's the definition. The definition is the quality or condition of being humble. So that's not helpful. But it's a modest opinion or estimate of one's own importance. Humility is not saying, I have no value, I suck, my life is awful. Humility is having a modest understanding of who you are. And when we step back and we realize we're in this gigantic pond, there are billions of people. I am not the most important person all the time. It's having a modest understanding of who we are. And I think uh, Paul in Romans 12, just he lays this out perfectly. He says this, if I can find it. 
He says, this is Romans 12, chapter 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. And then he goes on saying, for just as, as there's one body with member, many members, and these members do not um, all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body. And then it says if, if you're a servant, if you're a teacher, if you're whatever, whatever you are, you live most fully into that. So this whole message is not about us needing to die to our value. It's about dying to our position so we can most fully live and be who God's calls to be. To be modest, I mean, to be humble just means to have a modest understanding of who we are, Right? Jeff is the most brilliant speaker of all time. He even makes me tear up sometimes. But he's, right, he's fantastic. He is known all across our denomination. He is the man. In our denomination, he's the big fish. He gets to be at our church. It is so awesome. But if you take one step back, our denomination is this tiny little denomination. And every denomination has some big fish. And so we have to be generous. and care. I didn't mean to dag. I mean, please, you hear me? Okay. Because you're awesome. He's awesome for us, but we're, okay. Dang it. I didn't mean to go there. Okay, we're, we're good to go. So, at the end of the day, this is what I had in my notes. It's like jumping, but Jeff preaching was better. So, right, if I jump, Michael Jordan jumps, he's old. Who's the new guy? Kobe, is he still young? I don't even know. I suck. <laughs> Matt, who's like a basketball guy that's good? LeBron. Yeah, LeBron, whatever. I hate that guy. But anyway, if me and LeBron, we both have a jumping contest, he's going to smoke me. But like, if we had to jump from here all the way to the moon, like that extra foot or two or three doesn't matter right? It doesn't matter. And, and that's the whole point, that our perspective needs to change. So in the ocean, Jesus is the, grac- the greatest, which the bottom line is simply this, that he asks us to take a seat in the back. If you want to know who the greatest is, the answer is simple. Jesus is the greatest. Jesus is the greatest, and there, we are one of many. We have value. We have importance, but we are just one of many people. And we put him as above, and what he asks for us is to become like the child. He asks for us to die to our positional power and submit and give those to others. So if you want to know where you should sit in the car on this journey to wherever God knows or God knows where, we, we start in the hump seat. That's where we start. And, uh, and Jesus tells the exact same thing, except he talks about a banquet. I talk about a car, but it's the same thing in, uh, in Luke uh, chapter 14, verse 7. You might have heard this story before, but he says this. Um, when someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for that person, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. And if so, the host will give, who invited both of you will have to come and say to you, give up and give this person your seat, and then you're humiliated. Um, and you will have to take this, the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place. And then when your host comes, they'll say, friend, move up to a better place. And then you'll be honored in the presence of all your guests. And I think it's a helpful reminder that when we show up, we show up in a humble position it is so embarrassing to take the position of honor and then to find out your true position. I, uh, I got to be a guest blogger, which is so nerdy, but in this tiny little world of my, that I'm in, it was this position of honor. I got to go to this orange conference in Atlanta, sit in a suite with all the other nerds, and I was part of them. And uh, there's this guy, his, his name's Jeremy, and he's so cool, and he's really ripped, and he has like a faux hawk, and he's like the head of all the student pastor orange people. And I thought, we, and like, and his job is to sell orange to me, right, this curriculum. So he's always nice to me. He always wants to hang out with me. And, uh, and so I'm like, oh, this is awesome. We should totally hang out. He's like, yeah, of course, because he's trying to sling orange to me, right? And, uh, and so I, I, I'm going to Atlanta thinking, I'm going to go with like the inner sanctum of people. And I show up, Jeremy, what's up? He's like, Ben, what's up? Here, buy this. And, uh, and, and I'm like, no, we're hanging, right? And he's like, 
uh, yeah, come with us. And so I got to come with all the cool kids. And all of a sudden, I realized my true place. And my true place was really humiliating. I had to sit on the very side all by myself. And I saw kind of the true sanctum, which was great. We all do that. But it was hurtful because I thought I was more than I was, as opposed to if I start there and he goes, oh, Ben, you're legit. I love you. Come, come. I want to hang out with you. It's a different deal. And we do that all the time, right? I know this is the drama in my life. This is how pathetic my life is. <laughs> my son didn't get to be on a Little League team with his friends. Do you know how pissed that made me? <laughs> Do you know how many phone calls went around to all the moms? Too many. It is awful. That's my world. Oh, my kid. He's going to have a horrible self-esteem his whole life. Okay. That's my pathetic little world. And if I get up here and I bemoan, oh, that's how awful my life is, right? And then I get to hang out with my friends. I'm going to bust you up, Trey and Jennifer, because I love you guys. But then I'm having a, hanging out with Trey last night or a couple nights ago, and uh, we're talking about his daughter. His daughter's going to the hospital, and she's going through all these treatment, treatments. And it's not going well. Sorry, Trey, but I love you. And I'm praying for you, and we all should be tra- praying for their family. But the deal is, who cares what, kid, what team my Little League teams, right? When my world is just me and my kid, it's awful. If I take a step back, okay, that's pathetic compared to what's going on with Trey. I want to love Trey. I want to be with Trey, right? If we take a step one step further, there's parents who've like lost kids this week. Somewhere in our world, they've lost kids. They've died for awful things for a gazillion reasons in our news. If we take a step back, right? When we humble ourselves, we can see that larger picture. We can care for other people. It doesn't mean my little baseball problem isn't big. It isn't. Um, it doesn't mean Trey's is big. Trey's is big, but it's not as big, right? There's always those things. When we humble ourselves, when we take our back seat, we can then be all that God has for us. Um, shoot, I'm going to be two minutes late, but that's okay. Because, well, it's not okay. Um, here's my basic conclusion. I just would, I want to give this to you as a takeaway. Whether you are a Christ follower, whether you got dragged here, no matter where you are, this, what I love about Jesus and his wisdom is it works for all people in all time. Because you know in your world the people who own their status, the people who think they're the most important people in the room, you watch their worlds get smaller and smaller and smaller, and their influence gets smaller and smaller and smaller. I saw that movie Jobs with Katie, uh, and it was a great movie, and you realize that guy was a total jerk. He was so selfish and so self-absorbed, and when he started out and had all these people around him, by the end, he was all by himself. He got kicked out of his own company because his world was all about him, and he was the greatest and smartest. But at the end, it didn't matter at all. So we see that in our real lives. And we have friends of ours who are humble and who are gracious, who sit in the back seat all the time. And we want to give them influence. We want to give them props. And and we are so honored to be up on a a church staff uh, and being led by Michael. I think he is an excellent example of that. Michael is one of the hardest working people on our staff. What he does, he gets here in the morning. He uh, deals with all this technical stuff. And his team loves him. Every now, a year ago, I was going to read this email, but I don't want to blow anyone up too much. But it was an awful Sunday. Everything went wrong, which happens every now and then. And, uh, and one of the guys on his team was like, hey, pastors, you need to know that Michael and Michael and Linda, the way that they handled that morning, you would be so proud. Like, our, we're led in worship by people who serve you, who serve us. And so we can be like... He gets esteem. Michael and Linda, right? They're not up here going, I'm so awesome. Michael's not like, I'm so, I mean, he looks awesome and like he's a rock star, but he's not promoting that. He's not putting that on us. And because he does that, we want to have his back. His team wants to be with him, right? They want to be near him because he lifts them up. So here's my one challenge for you. To put Jesus to the test. Because I think it makes no sense at all to serve other people. 
I'm afraid if I serve other people, I'm going to get left behind and I'm going to ride hump seat forever. But Jesus says that's how it should be, so we should do it. But I think this week, you should just challenge yourself. Think of yourself this week. Start with your like, tiny little family. Start with your kids. Start with your spouse. Start with someone, your coworker. Just pick one person and say, I am going to serve that person. I'm going to put position out the window, and I'm going to selflessly humble myself and love them and care for them. And just watch how God softens their heart towards you, how God draws you in relationship to, to them. I have to admit, it totally sucks I got in this brutal fight with Katie this week. And for me, I, I, I can never go first. And it's awful, and that's part of our reason. And Katie, she always goes first. And uh, even last night, she goes first. And it's like, oh, like my heart, like whatever our fight was about, it's all over because she went first. Now I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm in. It's okay to go first. We have to go first. Jesus in Philippians 2 is the Son of God. He went first. He humbled himself to the point of death on the cross He's God's kid. He deserves it all. He should at least uh, get all the honor and glory. He humbled himself. So me and my tiny little vying for status can for sure give up some of that. So if you want to know who the greatest is, we need to find out who the big fish is. We take a step back and expand the size of our pond. And in the ocean, Jesus is the greatest. He is so big that our true space makes us equal. And because of that, God asks us to actually serve and humble ourselves. So let's do that. Let's be a church who serves and humbles ourselves. There is no street cred in owning our own status. So may we die to that. May I die to that. I owe you flowers, sweets. Love you. Okay, let me pray for us in our time, and then we'll, uh, we'll get out of here. Lord Jesus, it is unbelievable to me that you, the Son of God, the one who sits at the right hand of God, deserves to have angels, worshiping you, bowing down to you, serving you all day. And yet you humbled yourself and took on the lowly position of a servant. And for those of us who are Christ followers, man, may we lean into that as a model. We always vie for our own position and you gave that up. So may we not die to our value. May we live most fully into who we are and how you've made us but may we die to our position. May we serve one another. May we put you to the test by seeing how serving others, by humbly caring for one another, actually warms people towards us and most importantly towards you. May we live into that this week. We love you, Jesus. Amen and amen.